0: All righty, back out of here on The Fan. It is overtime with Jonathan Peter. I'm glad you guys could be with me here on this. I'm going to call it a championship Monday. We have the national title game going on. Michigan on top of Washington, 17-3. to We'll touch on that in a little bit. We're going to get to the Browns as well. Uh, we got a ton to get to. Off the beaten path coming your way at 940. Let's go out and talk to our friend Tay Seth of Sumer Uh, analytics and of course he's got a podcast he's got all sorts of different fun things that he's doing as he always does. He joins us here on the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. Tej, uh, first off thanks for joining us. Appreciate you as always I'm reading your tweets though you got me cracking up with the one. Uh, he says if the two teams are playing for the opportunity to eat a life-size Pop-Tart mascot instead of a small national championship trophy, uh, they'd probably have more motivation to win. Uh, I love all Pop-Tart related jokes, and uh, yeah, by the judging of this this early parts of this game, Taj, I don't know what we did to, to earn this, uh, but I feel like we could have done better.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think every bowl game should have an over-the-top mascot celebration type thing here, where you give <laughs> these players a lot of motivation to play for. Like that—that's what it's all about. Uh, putting the pop tart into the the
0: giant toaster to then have it disappear and come out baked was one of the most—it was one of the best things I've ever seen.
1: <laughs> I agree. It was—it was truly a great marketing campaign from from Pop Tart. I hope uh, you know different bowl games build on it in the future. So now,
0: what's happening in this national title game? I'm doing a radio show. I've not been able to see that much. I see Michigan's up 17-3, to and you think to yourself, okay, well, Michigan must be doing something right, but all I see is my timeline complaining about this game and how bad this game is for people's eyes. What is happening?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, this game has been a throwback to, you know, what, what football was, uh, you know, like 20, 30 years ago, where it's just Michigan running the ball down Washington's throat. Washington came into this game with the 77th ranked rush defense in terms of yards per carry. And Michigan has one of the best offensive lines in the country, and they have a great a running back room. So they've really just taken advantage of that. In this game, there hasn't been the explosive passing that you're used to seeing in these different college football games. And Washington has struggled as well with getting that explosive passing game going. Uh, you know, their, their receivers are having a little bit of a tougher time separating from Michigan's defensive backs. Now,
0: I mean it doesn't have to be pretty, just get the job done. I think it's hysterical that, that Harbaugh spent this morning basically telling everyone and anyone, uh, different NFL teams that he was wanting to go to. And I, I, I don't know why. There's a part of me that loves the idea that on the morning of a national title game he's leaking out different things involving the NFL as opposed to just being dialed in on this game.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean college football is a really tough coaching job, like as as many listeners know, uh, you know, with the Ryan Day discourse that happens Uh, You know, in your guys' area, like, I think that when when Harbaugh looks at everything that he's had to go through the last couple years, uh, you know, between, like, COVID and the recruiting violations that happened uh, about him during COVID and then, you know, the sign-stealing scandal where he didn't have that much to do with it, but a lot of the blame was placed on him. Like, I think these different things have kind of, like, pushed him forward to looking towards the NFL after all his time because it's got to be frustrating to be in his spot right now with everything outside of the actual games itself happening.
0: No doubt about it. All right, let's get to our bread and butter here in the NFL. Uh, Browns, Texans. I I had a a guest from Houston on last hour, and he was was basically just talking up how great he thinks C.J. Stroud is, and I don't disagree. I think C.J. Stroud is really, really talented. I'm not here to diminish C.J. Stroud, but uh, Taser, something about the Texans that don't scare me. Should I be more scared of this team?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because we saw Texans-Browns a couple of weeks ago with no C.J. Stroud. But again, it was a, as another iteration of what this Browns team is capable of with Joe Flacco as their quarterback and then everything they have going for them on defense. And when you look at the Texans, they're really vulnerable in the secondary, I think. Like, I think that this is going to be a big Amari Cooper game. Joe Flacco is going to have his interceptions. Like, I think that's part of his play style. But the explosive passing game, that hasn't been there for a lot of the year is going to be there with Flacco in this game. And then on the other side of the ball, the one way that you can really limit Stroud and the, the Texans passing offense is by getting pressure on him. And the Browns do that better than almost anyone, especially with Miles Garrett. So I think that's why I would feel pretty confident about the Browns this game because I feel like they match up well.
0: I love the idea of you saying it's going to be a big Amari Cooper game.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, from what you've seen from the te- Texans secondary, where Derek Stingley is still, you know, living a little bit on his, his draft status, I, th- I don't think his play has fully arrived there yet. And then the the Texans linebackers uh, are, are pretty weak in coverage, so I just can really see Kevin Stefanski targeting a lot of those players throughout the game and, and getting the ball to Cooper.
0: I love it, Tay Seth joining us here on ninety two three the fan. All right, so let me let me ask you. Why is it that the Texans can be a 10-win team, but then they, they lose to the Panthers in week 8, Desmond Ritter throws for 360 on them, and it just, it just keeps feeling over and over again like they, they take on these pretty lousy teams, and they end up looking lousy themselves. I mean, I just, it's a very confusing team, Tish.
1: It is. I, I think a lot of it stems from them not being able to run the ball which means that they can't close out games. I mean, I'm, I'm with you and, like, the previous guest who came on. I think C.J. Stroud is awesome. I think Nico Collins is a great player. And that allows them to compete in a lot of these games as well. But not having a run game to, to close out games, especially when uh, they have the lead and they lean on the run game too much. I mean, we saw that mm. Colts game, First play of the game is a seventy five yard touchdown and then they're just running on every first and second down and they let the Colts back into the game. And I think that's that's why you're seeing these types of games like you mentioned where uh you know, they lose to the Panthers, um, they they have a game like they had against the Jets where they where they lose that game as well. Like I think I think it's when you have a young team like the Texans do, the inconsistencies are there for sure.
0: Yeah, and, you know, we mentioned C.J. Stroud, and, and what I told Jeremy when we had him on was I was like, I, why as a Browns fan should I be scared of C.J. Stroud? It's not that C.J. Stroud isn't great. It's just if this is the year of Omar Jackson – Lamar never worked as, looked as worse than what he did 6 uh 6 weeks ago against the Browns. Uh, they've stopped Lamar, they've stopped Joe Burrow, they've stopped Trevor Lawrence, they've stopped everyone and anyone Brock Purdy never had a worse game than what he did against the Browns this year. I just I feel like this Browns defense stage is so good. It almost doesn't matter who the quarterback is.
1: I'm totally with you. I think when when I came on over the summer, we talked about like how Andrew Barry and, and Paul DiBodesta and the, the Browns front office was building this Browns defense yeah. that not a lot of people are talking about coming into the season. The Browns defensive line is so good. Morton Emerson is one of the more underrated players in the league this year. I think like mm-hmm. the second, and then you have the, the guy in Jim Schwartz that can really tie it all together. Uh, you know, I love all like the cover two that he's playing cover two invert where he's aggressive with sending blisters in. And like, I think all that together makes this Browns defense awesome and, it makes these offenses continue to underperform their season average when they go against the Browns.
0: Yeah, I remember when we talked in the offseason, uh, you in particular, you loved the Adarius Smith move, uh, and you loved what the it would mean for the defensive line, and, and everything, we, we talked about the cover nine with, with Jim Schwartz, and I, I, I got to tell you, it's materialized that more and then some than what we ever could have dreamed of.
1: For sure, yeah. I, mean, I didn't know if it was going to be this good. You know, number one defense in the NFL, <laughs> number one against the pass, 10th against the run. I, I was cautiously optimistic about the Browns defense after what I saw last year, but it was just a great vision from everyone in the Browns organization, uh, you know, front office to coaching staff, putting the pieces in place and then having the scheme to really make it work. And when you have Miles Garrett, the gravity that he brings is going to allow these other pass rushers to have an easier time on the defensive line. And that's, that's been th- the biggest part about watching this Browns defensive line this year.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, Tej, you co-host Stats and Scheme. I know you're a numbers guy even though you have a I feel like you have a very good sense on numbers. I feel like you you marry the two of watching and seeing what you have with your eyes and then also understanding that, you know, numbers do play a matter into this. What's interesting to me is that Miles Garrett is like an advanced analytics darling right now. But the the fight that we're having here in Cleveland is how do we get the old guard of NFL voters and the AP voters, the the people that are going to be voting on this type of thing to understand that, uh, sure, 19 means more than 14 in the case of TJ Watt over Miles Garrett, but what Miles has done this year has been more impactful than what TJ Watt has done in the football field.
1: For sure, and it is a very tough thing to get the traditional fans more inclined with some of the advanced numbers that we like to look at when it comes to advanced metrics that aren't just sacks. And when you look at sacks, you're only taking a very small percent percentage of a defensive lineman's actual plays when they can affect every single play like Miles Garrett does. TJ Watt is obviously a fantastic player and the facts speak for themselves, but Miles Garrett, when it comes to pressures, when it comes to what he does for other defensive linemen, like we talked about with the gravity and then what he also does in the run game, uh, just on a play to play basis is the better defensive lineman than TJ Watt. And so when you try to marry all of that together It is like a tough pitch to give to the traditional fans, but I think that over time people will come around to it, and people will see the case for Miles Garrett being one of, if not the best, edge rusher in the NFL.
0: Is Stefanski your coach of the year?
1: No, that's a great question. Um, You know, honestly, this this uh, playoff game is kind of the coach of the year ball. Stefanski has been great. Uh, D'Amico Ryan's has been great. I lean Stefanski. Just if you look at the journey that this team has been on five different starting quarterbacks this year, uh, winning a game with, with four different starting quarterbacks. And, um, and you know, I, I still think that he is such an edge as a play caller. So I, I lean Stefanski, but I wouldn't be mad if you go D'Amico Ryan.
0: It's funny. First time they matched up this year. That's what I said. I was like, it's going to be the coach of the year bowl. Whoever wins this at halftime or at the end of the game, we can just present the coach of the year trophy to that coach (laughs) right then and there. Uh, You know, I've I've kind of come back down a little bit with the idea that, and so I think Stefanski will win it. And I'm, I'm more than happy for Stefanski to win that award. Uh, Second time in his career. It's great. He's done an awesome job. I did wonder though, if Vegas as well as the people that seem like they want to voice their opinions on this. I wonder if, I wonder if we left Jim Harbaugh or me, John Harbaugh, the other Harbaugh, in the dust in this conversation a little bit bit more than we should have. You know, Lamar uh, changing his game and then turning into what is going to be a second league MVP. They got the number one seed. They look like one of the best teams, if not the best team in football. I wonder if we overlooked Harbaugh in that discussion a little bit.
1: I think that's a great point to bring up. When you look at coach of the year, it's usually the team that exceeded their expectations the most or exceeded their roster talent. From a win's perspective, and I think Harbaugh is getting knocked, you know, unfairly to him probably for having such a good roster. But like you brought up, Harbaugh has nailed so many of these things along the way: navigating a very tumultuous offseason where they had to figure out the Lamar Jackson situation and whether or not he was going to play for the Ravens in the future; nailing his coordinator hires, yes. Mike McDonald two years ago and Todd Monken this year has been really impressive. From John Harbaugh's perspective so I think all that together like I think he definitely has a case for it because yeah like you said the Ravens did get the one seed here but the talent on the Ravens especially on the offensive side is so immense that that's why I think voters are looking elsewhere towards the Stefanski or D'Amico Ryans or Shane Steichen to see who overcame their roster talent the most when it came to wins.
0: Now, what would you do if you're the Steelers and Mike Tomlin? You know, he gets to 10 wins, he gets to the postseason, so the idea that he's just gone at the end of this year kind of goes up in smoke, but his contract has one more season on it. Uh, would you extend him, or do you play out next year and see where it all lies after that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there was a really interesting point uh, brought up by by um, Bill Simmons when he was talking about every 10 years, these very high-level head coaches and GMs it's better for them to get a, a new set of challenges. And when you look at someone like Tomlin or – the That's the Theo
0: Epstein principle right the, there, Tej. I, the Theo I credit Epstein Theo all yeah. the time with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every 10 years. Yeah. Like every 10 years, you, it doesn't matter who you are, you got to be – you, you lose your voice.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't remember exactly whose principle it was, but yeah, Theo Epstein. Um, and I think that's, that applies to so many coaches right now, and I think that applies to Tomlin as well, where it depends on how much – blame you assign on him for the quarterback situation or the, you know, the overall offensive talent in, in Pittsburgh, where if you, if you fully assign that on Tomlin, then maybe that that one year expires and he goes and he, he looks for that new challenge. Uh, but if you think that Tomlin has done a good job overcoming, having multiple starting quarterbacks and not really having a, a top 12 quarterback these past couple of years uh, since Roethlisberger has declined, like I think, that you can extend him and, and roll with him. So I think it, it does depend on the internals of what Pittsburgh thinks.
0: i got to ask you one more, and we'll get you out of here. I, and This is going to be self-serving because half my audience does not care in the slightest bit at this point about Baker Mayfield. But Baker did get the division done, and it was a, a Bucs team. That When I talked to friends of mine in Tampa, they said, oh, they'll compete for the division this year. But I remember before the season, nobody outside of Tampa had that thought process at all. Did this revive Baker's career, or is he in a situation where he's just got to prove it every year over and over again?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's really cool that Tampa has been able to sustain high-level quarterback play for five years now with three different quarterbacks going from James yeah. Winston to Tom Brady to, to Baker Mayfield. And I think Chris Godwin and Mike Evans are such good receivers that it just gives you such a high floor as a quarterback there. I think Baker is going to get another chance with the Buccaneers Next year, which he deserves to as a, a division champion, someone who ranks, uh, you know, top 15 and expected points added per play, which is like our favorite quarterback production metric. So I think I think he deserves that another chance next year, but he'll still be on a shorter lease relative to other quarterbacks just because of what was before that, uh, you know, especially the previous year in Carolina, and Los Angeles.
0: Tage, we appreciate the time as always. We're checking you out at the Stats and Scheme podcast, everything you're doing over there at Sumer Sports. And uh, appreciate you always giving us a few minutes. We'll catch up with you down the road. Thank you.